0: We're talking about John uh, the Baptist's disciples. How how he had a couple of them who decided to leave Jesus. Um, in the process, what happened is he his, he looked up and he saw Jesus coming and approaching, and he was like he was like, "Behold!" You know, like he got all excited again and he saw Jesus. And when he said, "You know, behold, you know the Lamb of God," and his disciples said, "Well, I'm following that guy then." So so he had a couple of guys who who left, and and as they were following Jesus, they then. Jesus happened to notice, he said, you know, hey, what are you guys seeking? What are you all looking for? And they, and they had a really great answer. They said, we want to know where you're staying, which we all know really is not the question you want to ask the Savior, Jesus Christ, right? So, so, so we were talking about, you know, are we seeking after Jesus, and are we simply seeking to see where it is that he's staying, or are we seeking to follow him? And that was what we talked about last week. Now, this week, we're, we're shifting gears a little bit. So, um, we're going to go to John chapter 2. We're going to read through the, fir- the first 12 verses. So, let's do that together. It says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to uh, Capernaum and with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, before we get going, for some of you, maybe not everybody in this room, but some of you may look at this and go, isn't there something missing? Isn't, like, 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 isn't there supposed to be something that really kind of happened after Jesus was, was baptized and before he went to this wedding and performed this miracle of turning water into wine? So what we need to do is we make, need to make sure that we understand the timeline of what's happening here. So um, here it sort of appears, if you're just reading in the book of John, it sort of appears that, that three days after the baptism of Jesus, he's heading off to this wedding. He's, he's going, he's going to attend, and then we get to see how things unfolded here. However, if you were to read about the same account in the book of Mark, chapter 1, what you would see is a different set of events that are unfolding. And it, it, basically, it says that after Jesus was baptized, that the Holy Spirit drove him out into the wilderness immediately. And then he spent 40 days and 40 nights there. So we run into what would be for some people an issue. We, we run into some people would claim that there's a contradiction now in the Gospels. But what we're going to talk about, and it's the reason I want to just take a few moments to, to land here is to explain there is no contradiction. God's word is absolute truth. It is perfect in every way. And what I can assure you is that each of these Gospels, not only do they not contradict one another, but they complement one another. And so, and so what we get to see is that if you were going to go and look back at, at Mark chapter 1, and you get to read all about how Jesus went out, and he was tempted by Satan, and all of those things that, that happened, we would get to, to you know, get to see what that particular story looked like. But then when you come to John, and again, you look at John, and you go, well, but it says on the third day there was this wedding. Like, what do you do? How do you go back? How do you, how do you say that there's not this contradiction between Mark and... And John, when, when Mark is saying he spent 40 days somewhere, and we're going three days later, he went to a wedding. What do you do with that? Well, what we have to do is we've got to back up. If you back up all the way into John chapter 1, go to verse 19. Verse 19, what happens there <clears throat> is it says, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? If we back up all the way to that point, what we get to see is a key word. This is the testimony of John. Now, if I stand up here before you and I give my testimony, is that what's happening right now, or is that what has happened? It's What happened before. I've shared my testimony with you guys. I've shared my testimony of, of what happened you know, with, with me, with, with you know, Sierra being three years old. We went to an Easter egg hunt and the whole thing leading all the way up to the point where God said, hey, you've not been following me for 33 years. Get busy. And then here I am today following the Lord Jesus Christ and, and doing the things that he has called for me to do. So if I say, hey, this is the testimony of Greg Knapper, what you're going to hear is the things that have led me to this point in time exactly what we got there in John chapter 1. When John said, or when we read there, it says, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. And so what we got to read about were, was an account of events past. John was speaking to the priests and the Levites about events that had already occurred. In John 1, verse 26, John answers them and he says, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And it says, stands. It doesn't say, doesn't say, you know, uh, stood. It, it, it doesn't say will stand. It said, stands. In that moment when John was sharing with the priests, with the Levites, what he was saying is, is there's somebody among you who, if you continue to read there, saying, you don't know them. You don't know who they are. I didn't know who they were, and so God revealed it to me and I'm going to share that with you in this testimony. And what he does is he says, there's one among us who stands. So in, when John is delivering his testimony to those priests, to the Levites there, he's saying, Jesus Christ is standing. Not that he has stood and he's no longer here. Not that he will come and stand as in like he's yet to be here. He says, He stands because I'm sharing the testimony of what has happened. And then he says, what happened was I looked up and I saw this guy coming. And I said, you all got to know by now, this is like one of my favorite parts. Behold! the Lamb of God, like he was super excited and stoked about it. And he was like, there's Jesus, and he's coming. And I didn't realize that this is who it was until God just gave me this vision. And he said, what's going to happen is I'm going to baptize Jesus, and then the heavens are going to open, and then you're going to see God pouring down on his one and only son. And, and there's going to be like this dove that's going to descend, and you're going to know for a fact that Jesus is who Jesus is. He's the one and only true son of God. And so John has been sharing with the priests and the Levites. All the while, Jesus isn't standing next to him as he's sharing these events because he's spending 40 days and 40 nights in the desert at this time. So when you look at the timeline of events of things that have happened, things that have occurred, what we get to see is this timeline of events totally then can lead us into where we are, which is now when... John sees Jesus come back from the desert. And then he again says, Behold! And he gets all excited again. That's where we were picking up last week. It was John seeing him come back from the desert. He's been gone for 40 days, and John was just as excited to see him a month later as he was the first time before he got the baptizing. He was super excited, super stoked to see him. And, and then we get to where we are Here, in the book of John, chapter 2, you see, the Gospels never contradict one another, ever. Never, ever, ever. I can't say it enough. Never, 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 never. The Gospels do not contradict one another. They only complement one another. They show and and help us see the true authenticity of the Bible. God's Word, it's breathed, it's active, and it's living, and it is just as true today as it was more than 2,000 years ago. Back when Jesus was here walking this earth, I, I, again, it's just one of those things where you go, man, I wish I could have been there to see him in person so that you could exclaim the same way. But Here's the thing. What we know is that the Bible is the true living word of God. Nothing in it is, is fallible. It is infallible. Every word is truth. 100 and hundred and gazillion percent. I, I can't get a percentage that's high enough, but that brings us to where we are today. Absolutely brings us to where we are today. I'm going to try and flip this thing. Today, we're going to be talking about this manifested glory of Jesus, and so um, what we're going to be doing is is looking now into these, these first, really, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses is what we're going to concentrate on, and so It says that on the third day, that, excuse me, Jesus returns. And remember, he's returning from the wilderness. So this is three days after he has returned. He's had two disciples who have followed him. We got introduced to different disciples. We got introduced to Andrew and to Peter and to um, uh, 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 Nathaniel. and, And so we've been introduced to several. But now Jesus gets invited to this wedding. And Mary, his mother, asks him for help. And what we know is that, that Jesus is 100% percent see, Jesus is 100% willing to help anyone who asks for it. Now, there's a caveat here, though. We have to understand some context. So Mary is asking her her son for help she says to him they have no wine and are any of you taken back just a little bit by the way that Jesus responds let me just read it for you one more time he goes woman what does this have to do with me I wouldn't have made it that far with my mother I would have said woman and there would have been this noise that would have come from the south it would have sounded like this because she would have knocked me upside my head for going, woman, I wouldn't have made it that far. Especially to the part where it says, what's this got to do with me? This is the truth. My mother, God love her. She's a, you all have met my, many of you have met my mother. She's a wonderful woman. She had this famous saying that she used to say to me. Now I'm not going to say it exactly the way that she said it. But it went something like this. She said, you should give your heart and soul to the Lord. Because your rear end is mine. Now, she changed it up a little bit, and I'm going to let you fill in that blank. She really is a wonderful woman. I've got the greatest mother in the world. She, hopefully, if she watches this, she'll laugh. Um, if not, I'll get a phone call. Um, but here's the thing. Jesus approaches her, and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? It seems a little abrupt, doesn't it? It seems almost disrespectful in a way. You're, Jesus, who's supposed to be Lord and King, and, and, and he's, he's leading us to... to, to You know, how we're supposed to do everything, honor thy mother and the father and and, and all of these things. And then he stops her cold and says, woman, what does this have to do with me? What you have to do, again, is you got to make sure that you understand the context in which this is being said. Back then, the Greek for woman was translated into ma'am. So really what he said was, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Sounds a little more polite now, doesn't it? Doesn't sound so, so bad. Maybe he didn't get knocked upside the head like I would have. So, so he says, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? He's not being disrespectful. But at the same time, he is he's pointing out some solid truths, even to his mother. And so he's being respectful, but firm. Because here's the thing. Should Jesus should there be an expectation that Jesus is simply going to just do whatever his mother says or should Jesus do what the father commands See there's a distinction that happens there Jesus has a purpose and a plan that plan has been given by God the Father and Jesus being an obedient son is going to adhere to that plan he's going to stick to it he's not going to veer course not even for his own mother, and it's the reason that he stops her and says, "Woman or ma'am, what does this have to do to me? Do with me?" And the truth is, is Jesus really isn't concerned about who's asking him this question. It really has nothing to do with family. There is he, Jesus wasn't concerned with a familial connection at all. And and if you're wondering why that would be. Or how could that be? I'm going to point you to another place. You can flip there if you want to. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. It says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man that came and told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. See, that's an important thing to see and understand. In this room alone, if you are, if you are a Christian, if you have accepted the grace of Jesus Christ, same way that I have, if you've been saved by grace, the grace of Jesus, then you are my brother. You are my sister you're my mother. Mary Lou, uh, she thinks she's downstairs. She's definitely a mother figure to me, probably many of you as well. I'll tell her all the time, you're like a second mom to me. This is what Jesus is pointing us to. He's saying all these familial relationships that you have, all of these relationships that you've got, period, in your life, none of them are going to ever matter more than the real relationship that you have with Jesus Christ and the connection that that gives you because you've been adopted as sons and daughters of the Lord God and as such you've received as a full heir the kingdom when God calls us home and so so we get to be here in this place brothers and sisters mothers and fathers in Christ Jesus Jesus is looking at his own mother this way, and it's a great example for us to see. It doesn't matter who is speaking. What matters is the obedience that, that you have to the Father. It's the way that God set it up. God set it up so that, so that the Father is the one who is supposed to be leading and doing what is right, doing what is just. And those things spill down. Men, I'm sorry to, to bring you in on this, but, but that comes down to us too. That's something that we as fathers, as men, we're supposed to be doing in our own families. We should be great representatives of that in our own situation, in our own family. That when we say, this is what we are supposed to do in Christ Jesus, that's what is supposed to happen. And if your mother says, no, do something different, we're supposed to say, but the father said. I'm not doing this so I can get yelled at when I get home. It's, This is God's will. This is God's way. This is the rules that he implemented. It's not so that I can just simply say, do this because I said so. It's because, do this because God the Father said so, and he's commanded it, and he is right, and he is good, and he is just. It's all about the Lord. The second thing that Jesus says is, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then The Gospel of John, as we're reading through this Gospel, what we're going to get to see is that specifically is pointing to the hour of Jesus' death on the cross. When he says, my hour has not come, what he's he's doing is he's telling his mother that he's got to be cautious so that he's doing the will of his Father and not the will of man. It's more important to do God's work than it is ever going to be to do the work of people here. And so, So she's asking for his help, and he is responding to her truthfully and rightly. He's not being disrespectful. It's why here in verse 11 that we get to see Jesus Christ, why he is perfect, and why he is the Son of God. And it says in verse 11, if you were to just jump down to verse 11, it says Jesus, he manifested or displayed, rather, his glory. The reason that it doesn't say he revealed his glory is because his hour hasn't yet come. He's manifested his glory. He's he's putting it on display now, just a little bit. But to reveal it completely and totally, it's not time. And so he has to wait. He's got to be cautious. He's got to do and be obedient to the Father. Now, Jesus does, ultimately, do what Mary asked him to do. So, Maybe that causes a little confusion. It did for me the first few times that I read this. I was like, wait a second. He just did what his mother asked to do anyway, which I can tell you that my mother would totally agree with. She goes, see, I told you Jesus does what his mother asked. I said, "Eh, that's really not why he did it, though, Mom. And I have to help point to that truth. And while that sounds like a good idea and a good plan, when he does what his mother asked, it's not why we think. We would assume that Jesus did this to honor his mother. We would assume that, that, that he's trying to, to do what, what those commandments tell us we should do, to honor the mother and the, and the father. And, but if he would have done this, he would have been wrong. And the reason is because it would have conflicted with God's plan. Remember, his hour hasn't come. And so to do that would have been disobedient, not obedient. And the Lord God has a perfect plan a right and good and perfect plan. And, and so Jesus did what Mary asked because of her faith. Now, hopefully that makes some sense. And if not, here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Jesus believed that her son Jesus, Mary believed, I think I said that wrong, Mary believed that her son Jesus is the Messiah. She was visited by angels prior to being told that she was going to be pregnant, and she was pregnant, and then she's had the Son of God, and, and, and so, G, so Mary all along believes 100% that Jesus is the Messiah. She has faith that he is the Messiah, and she believes more so by faith that Jesus is going to do whatever the right thing to do is. She left the outcome of what the next thing to happen was going to be in Jesus' hands. So, if Jesus decided to help with the wine situation, which we see he did, then it would be right. And if Jesus didn't help with the wine situation, then guess what? That would have been right. And she trusted Jesus by faith to do what was good and right. Why? Because he's the Messiah. She believed in him that way. If Jesus had chosen not to help with the wine she probably would have just simply said, okay, and walked away. But just in case we're not, we don't really fully understand, I'm going to point you to a couple other places. Um, and you can just jot these down, maybe go visit them later on. If you want to, you just write them down the back of your bulletin. But in Matthew 9, we were told about a woman who, would, who had been bleeding for years, and she simply went up and she touched the fringe of Jesus' clothes. And because of that, because of her faith, In Jesus Christ, she was healed. Remember, Jesus looked at her and he said, your faith has healed you. In Mark 10, there was a blind beggar who was healed because of his faith in Jesus. In Luke 17, there was a leper who was healed because of his faith in Jesus. In Matthew 15, there was a woman who begged Jesus to heal her daughter, saying, saying, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Remember, do you remember what he said to her prior to that? He said, he said what do you want from me? She was a Gentile woman. She, the, the disciples were tired of hearing her whine and crying. They were like, please, Jesus, just do something with her. And so he turned and he's like, what do, you, what do you want from me? Like, what do you want? And she said, I want you to heal my daughter. And he said, is it right, though, for me to do that when I didn't come here to heal your people? I came to heal and, and, and deal with the, with the Jewish people. Why are you coming to me? And she said, Because even the dogs will eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You talk about faith? That's faith. And then Jesus replied to her. He said, woman, great is your faith. And there's that word again. Woman, really what he's saying is ma'am. Great is your faith. He said, be it done for you as you desire. And it says that her daughter was healed instantly. It's a matter of faith. Mary The mother of Jesus has faith in her son. It was because of her faith that Jesus went ahead and performed this first miracle. Jesus does what is right. He does because he is the Lord God. We're not talking about somebody who's completely and totally separate. Jesus isn't just a third person. Jesus is the Lord. Period. Now, as we continue to move through the text, what we get to see is that, that the, manifested of, the manifested glory of Jesus can also purify and make us new. It's not up there, but it will be. So we get to see now that we're talking about there's six stone jars. And these six stone jars were, were there. They were used for, for the Jewish rites of purification. It tells us that in the text. These jars could have been used for some different purposes, anything from maybe storing purification items to to actually being used for purification bathing. Now, here, scholars believe that they were were used for bathing. I just want to point that out ahead of time. These were jars that they prepared for people to bathe. And Jesus said, go use those that we can drink from. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Jesus... Here, uses these purification jars. And he's going to use them to point to when his hour will come. A couple of things to notice here as well. The water that turned into wine obviously represents the blood of Jesus. It obviously represents the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus gives life. And, and these jars, it tells us here in the text that these jars would hold like 20 to 30 gallons. We're talking about six jars. I'm not good at math. I'd have to take my shoes off, but I did the calculations earlier for you people. That's like 180 gallons of wine. Now, I grew up Catholic. I had a really big family. What I can tell you, though, is I've never seen 180 gallons of wine used at any wedding we've ever been to. Ever. And we had huge families. So the amount of wine that Jesus prepared at this wedding was way more than enough than was needed. The the amount is huge. And what we know is that the blood of Jesus that was shed for all people, he shed blood and it was enough to cover the sin, the multitude of sin for all people. And the amount of blood that he shed that covered that was well more than enough. We get to see this representation that Jesus is using in these purification jars uh, that he has turned into wine to represent the blood of Christ for his hour to come to go, I'm going to create so much that it's going to be able to cover everybody. And then the last thing to note here is that the wine that Jesus made, it was the best. Remember what the what the what the head, um, the master of the feast said. Now the master of the feast, just so everybody is clear, master of the feast, he's like the head waiter guy. Okay, he's like he's like the guy that's in charge of all the food and the wine and all this stuff. He wasn't even aware, however, that they were running out of wine. And and it tells us that that the wine that Jesus made when when they dipped it out of the of those purification jars and they took it to him to taste, he said, "Whoa." Most people give the really good wine in the beginning so that people can get joyful. I'll put quotes around that. And then, once everybody's good and happy, then we bring out the poor wine. But Jesus made this really good wine. As a matter of fact, it was the best tasting wine probably that this guy has ever tasted. Why? Because it was perfect. It was that representation of the blood of Christ. And... and Think about this the guy that that master of the feast when he was talking to to the bridegroom he was like he's like man the wine you were serving in the beginning was like poor it was bad (laughs) it was the bad wine but this wine that you're bringing out this wine is is so good this wine is 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 amazing and if we again look toward the hour of christ and in the connection that this has to Jesus, is that Jesus will always be better. Jesus will always be more fulfilling. Jesus will always be more satisfying than anything else that this world has to offer. And that's the picture that we can get represented through this act of Jesus turning the water into wine. It is foretelling this hour of Jesus to come, of what's going to happen, about how Jesus is so much better. Which then takes us to the last thing, is that the manifested glory of Jesus reveals Jesus as the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. The church is his bride. John uh, chapter 3, verse 29, you can see, it, we'll, we'll, we'll read this when we get into chapter 3, but I'm just going to foreshadow it for you now. John the Baptist says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend." of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist is saying, I am so happy and so ecstatic to see that Jesus has arrived on the scene and that people can take their eyes off of me and to focus on him because he is the great bridegroom. He is the great great everything that this world needs. We get to see here that, again, the master of the feast, he's rejoicing in the bridegroom because, because he believes that the bridegroom in this situation, in this wedding, that he saved the best for last. But the truth here is that the bridegroom, in this situation, in this text, he failed. He failed to provide enough. He didn't account for enough people. And to top it off, his wine wasn't that good anyway. The bottom line, this, this bridegroom failed. And in, and in this time frame, that was horrible. That would have carried with him forever. It was huge. When you got married, this was like the big event. People paid attention to it. And years and years after, they would talk about your wedding and about how well you did. And in this case, he would have failed. And that's an indicator for each of us in the world today. We don't measure up. We will fail. Left to our own, our own vices, we would fail. Why? Because we all fall short of the glory of God. Every, last, every single one of us. All bridegrooms and husbands especially <laughs> fail in this world. Men are not enough and we are going to let people down. We don't measure up. But here's the hope. Check this out. Jesus being the ultimate bridegroom was perfect. Jesus, being the ultimate bridegroom, was prepared not just for some of the people who were going to be there. He was prepared for all the people who were going to be there, and then some. Jesus, being the ultimate bridegroom, is he's an example for each and every single one of us about how we should be, about how we should live. And Jesus, being that ultimate bridegroom, is the perfect bridegroom to the church. One who leads us rightly, points us to truth, and guides us every step of the way. Verse 11 is where we're ending. It says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So have you experienced this manifested glory of Jesus Christ? You experienced this glory in your life. Are you filled and are you completely satisfied through through Jesus Christ? Are you completely satisfied through him, through his glory? And have you been made new by the glory of Jesus Christ? Have you given your heart to him? Have you accepted him as Lord and Savior? And if you have, where are you at in your life today? Do you see Jesus in your everyday walk do you see jesus represented in your everyday life and if not i invite you today to renew that we're going through the process here in this church of revitalizing everything that we do every move that you're going to see me make is going to be about revitalizing this church into the community to share and show the love of jesus christ pray every single one of you will come on this journey with me because I tell you I can't do it by myself but if you aren't pumped hopefully you can see I'm a little excited I get excited I don't know if you've noticed that yet but behold the Lamb of God is here Like I'm I'm excited people and I want you to be excited and come on this journey as well because there's a, a harvest out there that is ready I would love for all of us to do this together to walk alongside one another and to be just like that group of people who came to my door while I hid from you. That prayed earnestly with my wife so that I one day could receive salvation. That doesn't go unnoticed for me. I know what this church can do. I know what this church has done. And I know where this church is going because the Lord God has told me this vision of where we are supposed to go and how we're supposed to get there, and all I can do is invite you to come along. I'm excited about it. I'm excited. I want you to be excited too, and if you're not, come today and renew that passion. Give your heart over to him and ask him to lead you and guide you. I'll pray along with you if you want. I'll do whatever it takes. But church, we've got to be on fire for, for the Lord Jesus, and I invite you to make that happen today. Let's pray together.